Hello, and welcome to episode two of The Driving Force, where we're exploring what really is driving the sustainability agenda in industry. This podcast is brought to you by Tribosonics. Tribosonics is a transformational hard tech technology business using its unique sensing technologies to create value and drive sustainability for its global industrial customers. And we are your hosts, Christina King, Chief Commercial Officer. And Mark Wallace, Chief Operating Officer. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Vincent Rico. Vincent is the Innovation Director at Navaris Group, an automotive tier one supplier. Vincent's responsible for defining and implementing the technological and sustainability agenda for promoting collaborative projects with strategic partners to support the Beyond Plastic strategy execution. As well as working at the Navaris Group, Vincent is also an active career development mentor for young professionals and a business angel supporting the transition from a startup to a scale-up. He is passionate about exploring and learning about very diverse areas, which he believes is a key element to innovation. Vincent's journey towards sustainability began in the 2000s, when he was working in Japan at an automotive OEM and had the chance to work on CO2 reduction strategy and technology roadmaps, where Vincent developed fuel cell vehicles working on hydrogen. Since then, he's explored the pros and cons of CO2 reduction technologies, system architecture approach, and ecosystem development, and has developed a deep understanding of what it means to develop a new product in a circular world. Vincent holds an executive MPA from ESCP Business School with a thesis on using blockchain technology to support track and trace in circular economy, as well as furthering his knowledge by obtaining certificates about sustainability from Cambridge University in sustainability leadership and at ESCP Business School in sustainability business models. Welcome. Thank Great you. to have you on the uh, on the show. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. So we've worked together for a while uh, and we're excited about the topics that we're going to be talking through today and hearing about your views and experience. So I suppose to kick off, it'd be really good to explain to the listeners about your role uh, and a little bit about Novaris. Uh, so my role is uh, so I'm, I'm the innovation director uh, at Novaris, so a, a tier one automotive supplier uh, for plastic parts. And uh, my role is uh, basically to develop uh, strategies and to develop partnerships and to develop uh, innovations for the automotive market. All of my customers are the automotive OEMs. And so I, I basically have to work uh, with them upstream to understand what would be their needs and how the market would evolve on one side. But also I have to work on the, the supplier side to integrate what is necessary to answer to these needs. And the partnerships uh, aims at leveraging competencies that Novaris do not have internally uh, in order to do uh, something new indeed. Because we, we, it's not by using the, the old competencies that we can do something new. We need to, to develop partnerships and that's the purpose of it. So new challenges require new solutions. New solutions require new technologies. And to do that, you're bringing through businesses in partnership with yourselves. Yeah, um, and even uh, new competencies and new skills. Um, by working with uh, external partners, it's also to leverage uh, new mindsets. Uh, Novares is uh, developing some uh, plastic parts uh, 
and it's by uh, working, uh, for example, with uh, with you as uh, Tribasonics that uh, we we were able to understand uh, how to bring new skills uh, in the team and to develop innovation that we would not have been able to, to develop uh, alone. And that's uh, that's really the purpose of the uh, Novacar program, which is uh, the Open Innovation Program, uh, where we we aim at scouting new competencies to develop innovations for the markets and to answer to the needs that we will not be able to answer otherwise. For any listeners who don't know what Novacar is, could you tell us in a in a nutshell, what is Novacar? Yeah, the Novacar program is uh, an open innovation program where uh, if I'm trying to, to frame it, uh, we try to, to understand what the, how the market would evolve from uh, uh, the big mega trend point of view. Then we are uh, uh, making some ideation workshops in order to define what could be uh, the different applications we would be able to develop. And then either we do it uh, internally uh, as an organic growth development or with partners. And this uh, Novacar program aims at um, going from the proof of concept stage to the minimal viable project uh, stage, meaning to understand what could be the business model of of a solution and also to promote our uh, our innovations to our customers. Um, and the way we are organized is indeed in a very agile way. Uh, so we are developing some prototypes, maturing them in terms of business model, and, and then putting them into real cars uh, in, in real life uh, in order for them to be able to, to be promoted uh, globally uh, to uh, our uh, customers around the world. I think it's a, it's a fantastic uh, platform and it's one that we've really enjoyed engaging with because you have a route to getting that product out to the market so really getting engagement from your customers showing them how it works making it real and then getting the pull through through the customer so you know we've really enjoyed that and it's it's I think it's a fantastic program I do talk about it to other companies <laughs> I, I, I like also it's a way to frame or to illustrate um, uh, a nice quote that I like it's a Chinese uh, proverb it's a show it to me, I can see it. Tell it to me, I can hear it. Involve me and I can understand it. And uh, to promote and to have some prototypes in real life in a program like, like that, it's really to, a way to involve our customers in our innovation journey. The Novacar program is a brilliant example of open innovation. To what extent is that innovation focused on sustainability? Uh, the one, one part of, of the challenge we are facing that now the whole ecosystem of uh, automotive is evolving towards uh, developing sustainability. Um, and so we have worked, for example, on different type of solutions, such as the one we have developed together, like uh, the smart tube concept, where we, we would be able to uh, measure the, the different pollutants and, and leaks uh, in a car. But we have also worked on a different uh, raw material, uh, which is requested also for OEMs. Uh, and maybe if I'm trying to, to frame also what is a challenge uh, for uh, car OEMs, it's an automotive market. The automotive market is really uh, in transformation, under transformation now. Uh, they are trying to find some ways to stay ahead of competition uh, and to answer to regulations. That's uh, a part of it. And they try to comply to, uh, and at least to measure their CO2 emissions. And so for that, they, are, they, they can work, uh, OEMs, uh, automotive OEMs uh, can work on, on three stages. How to evaluate the CO2 emissions while manufacturing the product. How to evaluate the CO2 emissions while using the product. Uh, 
and uh, how to evaluate uh, the impact in the environment at the end of life of the product. So the, these three parts are life cycle assessment. So to, to evaluate as upstream as possible uh, the CO2 emissions and uh, to be able to develop a product which is uh, reducing this impact in the environment. And so the Novacar program, for example, we have different product lines in which uh, we are uh, focusing, for example, on e-powertrain, battery management. We are also working some on technology on new materials uh, in order to reduce both the impact, but also to, to shift towards a new way of, of designing products, but as well as pollutant detection or leak detection, which will be to anticipate the regulation evolution, especially in Europe, but not only in Europe, also in California, where it will be requested to know if uh, your car is uh, leaking uh, some pollutants in the atmosphere to prevent a, a new diesel gate. So from everything, I think you've mentioned there, e-powertrain, new materials, battery technology, all of that seems to be pointed very much at being more sustainable. Is sustainability driving your innovation or is your innovation driving sustainability? How, how do you see it? Yeah, so I, I can see this in a, as a, from a macro point of view, meaning that uh, it's uh, both, I would say. There is no chicken and no egg. At the end, it's uh, evolution. <laughs> um, indeed, I, I used to say that uh, to be creative, you need a frame to go out of the box. You need a box to go out of the box. And uh, uh, sustainability is a new box, which is a new limitation that we will have to handle. For me, it's a good opportunity to do uh, something new, to do innovation uh, in the future and to, to, to adapt to the change. Because uh, if I'm a bit provocative, innovation is not necessary, uh, but survival is not mandatory. And it means indeed uh, to, to be able to adapt to the change in the market, you need to do innovation in order to address the market evolution and the market needs. And to survive. Market, and to survive, <laughs> to survive and to stay, to stay uh, in the market, indeed. And uh, as Novares is a commodity supplier, uh, we need to be uh, completely agile on the, the market uh, change and to really adapt uh, as fast as possible to this market shift, uh, especially uh, nowadays with uh, the requirements uh, from regulations and policies, um, but also the geopolitical context uh, where the inflation is increasing and uh, where raw material uh, will be more uh, scarce. Uh, and that we, that's, I would say, uh, the playground in which we have to work with. So you have a lot of challenges that are coming from different directions at the minute. Uh, how are you addressing that for, with your customers and how are you driving that forward? That, that's interesting because uh, you, you cannot uh, do something new with, uh, with all concepts. And uh, nowadays, in the very short run, um, car OEMs are, I would say, in a transient phase. Uh, they are trying to search uh, how to improve towards sustainability and to, to comply to regulations. But there is no rule. There is, there is no one recipe. Uh, we need to, to find and to be creative to find solutions for each OEM or each solutions. Indeed, the market trend is really uh, going toward more sustainability because uh, of the CO2 impact. The CO2 emissions is really increasing, and so we need to, to comply to this. Resilience is really key. Um, um, do you know, for example, what is the difference between a, a linear economy of recycling or a circular economy? Circular is when it goes back into the production yeah. chain. However, I, I did see a... a 
uh, a visual about this that it's a very tiny amount that yeah. actually goes back into circulation yeah indeed all the the product development as of today uh, and from uh, the, the industrial stage um, was developed for linear economy meaning uh, uh, we were extracting resources we were transforming these resources and at the end of life creating some waste if i try to give some figures uh, there's 100 uh, gigaton of uh, resources extracted worldwide uh, a third of it is really uh, used for creating new products. Uh, a third of it is creating waste. And 20% of it is CO2 emissions. And uh, only uh, between 8 and 9% of all of these resources are really circular. And that's the challenge uh, we, we will face in the future. Waste will be the next and the future mine for uh, any pro new products. That's why, and that's the difference between uh, a linear economy based on recycling but uh, a circular economy means that there is no waste because everything should be mm. reused, recycled. I uh, love that term process. you use, that in the future we're going to be mining waste. That's yeah. crazy, but it's, you know, it could happen. Uh, waste uh, and landfill uh, area will be the, the future the mines. Mine. <laughs> you, you talked about compliance, uh, particularly in terms of sustainability. You talked about surviving as a business. And so a business, in order to survive, must meet its regulation, compliance, legislation, whatever the government might put in place. But you're talking about going further than that, going further than compliance. So what would you say to, to a business that says, well, I'm meeting my, I'm meeting my regulation, I'm, I'm, I'm doing everything the government policy says I should do, why would I do any more than that? that that's just going to make me less competitive. What would you say in, in that scenario? Uh, first, I would I would say uh, it depends on the the time frame. If you are really focused on the very short term, it means you do not need to change anything. The only issue is that the long term is made with short terms, and um, if you add short terms on short terms, then at the end of the day you, you haven't changed anything. And that's balance we need to to find. Uh, it's a balance act, meaning that we need to find a trade off between what would be the impact in the long term and what kind of action we can do in the short term to be in the right uh, position, in the right direction in the future. Today, we have to comply to uh, two things. A financial report, which is, I would say, uh, business as usual. And financial reports, today, for example, if you do a, a mistake in your financial report, as uh, president of a company, you can go to jail if you made a mistake. Or, okay, if you made a mistake on purpose. Uh, <laughs> it's quite serious. Yeah. But uh, on your ESG report, for example, today, on your carbon footprint uh, communication, if you make a mistake, uh, there is no impact uh, on your, uh, I would say, you, you do not go to jail. Uh, you can have a bad uh, image. So it's more on the, on the goodwill side of it. You can touch the brand or there is a, you can make a bad buzz. But part of that, it's, there is not so much uh, an impact on the business. But this is going to change, isn't it, as we go forward? I think there's going to be more mandatory rules of big corporates to be uh, having to report on that. I would say I hope so, um, because today in the industry, we have to comply to scope one, two, yes. and three. Can you explain what those yeah. are first? So it's um, so the way to evaluate the, the CO2 emissions of a company. Uh, so the scope one is uh, integrating every direct emission that a uh, company is generating. For example, when you are, you are manufacturing, you are generating uh, direct emissions. Then uh, scope two is accounting the indirect emissions due to your uh, electricity mix. 
For example, if you are using renewable energy or if you are, if you are using nuclear power, uh, you are generating less CO2 than if you are using uh, coal as a primary uh, resources to generate your electricity. And, and that's scope two. And scope three is everything else, I would say, uh, upstream of your supply chain and downstream of your supply chain. And uh, this is a real exercise of accountability. So I can see that in the future, uh, the sustainability manager of a company will be the, the chief financial officer because it's the same competency and you need the same skills to make uh, accountability. But in the industry, you need to com the, the only commitment uh, from regulation you, you have is to count and to report scope one and two. Scope three is not mandatory, uh, but it is more and more requested by OEMs and uh, by regulations. At Novares, for example, uh, scope one, two, and three, we have one big part of our impact is uh, that we are using plastic resins, so upstream in the supply. Um, and um, our OEMs, our uh, customers are requesting us to reduce the CO2 emission of uh, such kind of uh, area Be because we, this is uh, something like around 50% of our uh, controllable emissions. Uh, if I can frame what means uh, controllable emissions, so scope one is direct emissions from manufacturing, so you can control it, you can measure it. Uh, scope two is indirect emissions due to electricity mix, so you can also control it. A simple way to reduce uh, the scope two emissions is to buy uh, green uh, certificates to reduce uh, your, your energy. And that's, I would say, the only uh, way to, to, to do it. But on scope three, you count something like upstream uh, transportation from your supplier to your manufacturing plant. For example, you count the CO2 emissions you have generated by buying your machines to, to make your manufacturing, for example. Um, and that's uh, upstream. And downstream uh, of your uh, process, you have uh, to count also the, the, the packaging, for example, you are using to, to supply your customers, the downstream transportation, and also the usage of your product, which is a big part of uh, the CO2 emissions. But the usage of the products is what we, we call the uncontrollable scope three, because uh, you cannot ask your end user not to use its car um, to re reduce your yeah. CO2 emissions. So the monitoring and measuring of scopes one, two, and three sounds like as a business, you need an entire team dedicated to that. Yeah, it's, it could be uh, now there's lots of, uh, of um, uh, external companies, uh, even some startups who, are, who have been developed uh, in, in the last uh, uh, decade to, to address these kind of topics. Uh, now, for example, you can plug in a SaaS platform in your SAP platform, uh, CRP, um, and uh, automatically you can evaluate your CO2 emissions by uh, just counting what you have bought, uh, what you are doing in the business. Uh, and this is um, accountability, but uh, based on CO2 emissions and not only on the, on the price. It's, I would say, easier now uh, than it was in the past. That's at least to evaluate uh, where you are and uh, how to evaluate the, the action plan you need to do also. So it's long-term survivability. It's, it's long-term so, so survivability, um, but by managing the, the really short-term uh, challenge uh, a business is facing. And that's really uh, where, where the trick is. And I think if all, all the, the large OEMs and the tier one suppliers are, are driving this change, that will filter down to the other kind of smaller companies that are in the, the supply chain. It's going to have to happen and they'll lead the way to do that. But we need to be proactive to support, to support you. 
Yeah, and uh, even it would be it would become a barrier of entry. Uh, so <clears throat> the good point of it, it's uh, it would be a barrier of entry for a, a newcomer who are not, I would say, uh, who, prepared, who, yeah, and... prepared, or who will have an impact. Um, so in the in in the future, um, we will have to comply, obviously, uh, to this new policy. To to be clear, we already have this uh, on stage uh, with uh, some of our customers. For example, some of our customers are requesting uh, their tier one. Uh, to have uh, 100% of uh, renewable energy by 2025, for example. Some others uh, are uh, requesting, and this is what is tricky, uh, nuclear power in the electricity, and some are not requesting nuclear power or even forbidding to use nuclear power. So understandably, your business is being more driven by the OEMs than it is by European government policy. Uh, so the European government policy uh, are putting the constraints on, on the OEMs, OEMs. And, and then we are, as it far as we are working, on the, yeah, the yeah. supply chain. Yeah. But to, to be proactive, uh, it's also to look at uh, how the, the, the law and uh, how the regulation will evolve and to see what kind of um, uh, development we can, we can do. To keep ahead. To keep ahead and also to anticipate and to, to make the right choice in terms of, uh, in terms of development. And I suppose as, as a, a kind of plastics and polymers business, we, we should probably ask you, how, how are you going to uh, manage that for the future in terms of what, what you're talking about, the circular economy and you know, recycled materials? Is, is there a drive to kind of push that forward? What type of things are you looking at? Today, recycled materials are more expensive because uh, you add energy to recycle what was virgin material. The, the challenge today is for the automotive OEM to change their specifications. For example, when you are using um, uh, recycled material, the, the finish of your part is not um, all the same for every part. So it's a challenge because obviously you need to have a quality uh, management. I was saying that because it was done and it was put in place six years ago, but now they have a quality uh, management process. And so every part should comply to quality requirements. And so there are some criteria to evaluate and to grade uh, the level of, uh, of the quality for each part. When you are using a recycled material, it's a new game. Yeah, it's you very need... inconsistent. It's, it's it? less consistent. And even, for example, the industrial designer of an automotive OEM, if he is uh, doing what he was doing before, uh, then you are not able to use uh, recycled material. Uh, some OEMs, for example, have completely inversed uh, the, the topic and say, uh, we will show that the part has been recycled and made with recycled material so that uh, they have transformed the constraint into an opportunity to show their product has less impact on the environment. And that's to show the consumer, isn't it, that it's a recycled product and looks yeah. like a recycled. Yeah. And, and, and uh, it is very important also uh, to, to have in mind that recyclability is a part to reduce the CO2 emissions. Uh, but you need to work on two sides of it. I would say the, the rational sustainability. Do you reduce the CO2 emissions when you are developing a part? Uh, but also the perceived uh, sustainability. Do you give the impression? Uh, we are social animals, and so when we are using a product, do we have the feeling to use a, a part which has a low impact on the environment or a, a big impact in, in, in the environment? And that's a challenge uh, we, we will face because we are developing plastic components. Mm -hmm. Uh, and even if it is, we are using bioplastics with a very uh, low uh, CO2 emissions or even negative CO2 emissions, um, the, the perception of, I would say, a Lambda uh, customer would be that they are using just plastic. 
And uh, that's really, that would be uh, one of the challenges, is how to be able to, to develop a part, uh, so a plastic part, to reduce the CO2, the rational CO2 emissions, but also the perceived uh, CO2 emissions. So do you think we will ever get to the point of a fully recycled car? Uh, some OEMs are working on that, uh, and we are trying to, uh, to support them in, in this process. But for, for that, uh, yeah, the, the full ecosystem will have to evolve. And to uh, support that, because to, it's... To support, yeah. yeah, to support that. And, uh, but it's less to use recycled material than uh, to, to have a clear vision of uh, the full life cycle assessment. For example, today, a car, uh, if I make a comparison between an internal combustion engine car and electric car, an internal combustion engine car, so I would say the weakness of the car is the engine, which is designed to make something like uh, 220,000 kilometers. Um, uh, an electric car, uh, the weakness of it is the battery, but you can change it and shift it. But the, uh, an electric uh, engine in a car, in an electric car, it has been designed for more than 1 million uh, kilometers. So in a, in a sense, an electric car can last in the market a lot longer than an, an ICE car. And that would be also a big shift in the market, meaning that the car you are putting in the market today will last for until 2040 or 2050, something like that, which is not the case today for an internal combustion engine car because the average uh, ICE car in the market will last something like 15 years and then will be landfilled. So it, push, it pushes out this whole recycling issue, doesn't it? If, if, your, if your vehicles on average last five years longer, electric vehicles lasting five, maybe even 10 years longer than the ICE equivalent. Yeah, but you, you need to, to, to manage uh, the battery, which is uh, the weakness of it. So you'll have to change something, the battery, something like uh, every eight to 10 years or so. And that's a recycling challenge of its own. Yeah, that's one of the recycling challenge. And on the other side of it, it's um, every uh, decoration part inside of the car. For example, it's, um, I can use the same, uh, the same image when you are buying a flat. Uh, you like to do the painting and you like to do the, the, the decoration. When you are using a car which is uh, 30 years old, uh, maybe you will have to do the same thing. Um, it and sounds like we're yeah. going to get to a point where we can swap out things in the car. Uh, swap out the seats, swap yeah. out the, you know, they get re refurbished. Well, that's, that's the model and why not? taxis, isn't it? So a taxi structurally is very well built, the chassis, yeah. the body, and the internal combustion engine on a taxi is for hundreds of thousands of kilometers. But the taxi driver will refurbish the interior every so often, every so many years. I didn't know that, Mark. Yeah. Is, so is it possible that a consumer car will, will take a similar approach? But for that, it has, be, it has to be designed for that. Today, um, one of the challenges is that uh, every OEM are trying to, for their specification to evolve, uh, but this has not been taken into account yet. Um, for example, the quality uh, management is still the same. Uh, to give you another example, when, you are, when we are designing a plastic part with three types of plastic, at the end of life of this, uh, it is very difficult to recycle these parts because it has not been designed to be recyclable. Uh, it has not been designed to be separable at the end, and it has not been designed to be compatible with recycling channels. Um, it is changing, it is evolving, but it will be a, a change because obviously by designing this part, it was not by, by pleasure, it was because of uh, cost efficiency. So, and then that, that's something we have to do, either to make parts reparable 
and recyclable, or to make parts less costful and less uh, recyclable. What other sustainability challenges do you foresee in the, the automotive industry? What, what's, what's on the horizon in terms of the next challenge? Um, one of, one of the, the, the challenge is um, automotive industry is um, really facing uh, some key uh, transformation process really deep inside. If I make a, a small uh, uh, joke, it's uh, in the 70s, 1970s, a TV was costing around 5,000 francs um, and um, in a car was costing the same amount in the 70s. Mm. Um, if you are going up to the year 2010, uh, the car price was following the inflation rate. And today, uh, a TV is around 700 euros, uh, which is 5,000 francs. So, uh, meaning that uh, the, the cost of your TV uh, stayed the same. So, it was the, the, the improvements were the same as uh, the inflation rate. Uh, but the car uh, followed this, this slope up to the mid of the year 2010 and so. Then regulation for safety arrived. And then uh, the, the, the price of your car was slightly uh, increasing uh, compared to, uh, to the evolution of inflation. Then CO2 emissions regulations uh, increased also. And now we are at a point where the challenge of automotive industry is not to cannibalize uh, their buyers and customers. Uh, because uh, for me, uh, one of the key elements, it will be a, a social element for people to be able to afford to buy a car, a new car. Uh, so for me, I can see two scenarios. Either we continue uh, business as usual to be able to and to have to buy some cars or to switch to a mobility service uh, environment where uh, everybody would lease uh, a car. So the service model. Service model. And and the service model, it's um, it could solve some issues. If I can make another image, for example, if you consider a copy machine, maybe you know, you know Yeah, the, they were one of the first, I yeah, think, to yeah. do it. So a copy machine, if you build it as a product, it is built to last three years. Uh, and uh, the business model is made on paper and ink. And after three years, unfortunately, because uh, engineers made their job well, uh, the copy machine is, uh, is worked out and you need to replace it. And the full ecosystem, uh, when you, you sell a copy machine as a product, is built on that. The business developer is selling a copy machine, is rewarded on selling a copy machine, is rewarded to renew the copy machine, and to make a business on, on paper and ink. If you consider the same machine, the same copy machine, as a service, and uh, if you sell uh, your, your copy machine, if your business model is to make the business on per page, that's what is, it is today. Obviously, the, the, the topic is absolutely not the same. You need to build your copy machine to last as long as possible, to be as um, efficient as possible in the, in the paper and uh, in ink, because this is on, on, on you uh, if there is a maintenance You're issue. bearing the cost, aren't you? And the, the cost is on the repairing. So today, automotive industry is not built uh, that way yet. Uh, we are still building products, not building services. We have to be more sustainable in the future. We will have to think more uh, as a service, more than as a product. The analogy of the copy machine, the copy machine requires maintenance, and that, that is a cost associated with it, just like a car requires maintenance. So in this new economy, is, is, is maintenance still a big issue for 
an electric vehicle compared to an internal combustion engine? Yeah, in terms of ecosystem, it's also a, a big shift in the market for an ICE car. Almost everybody were able to, to manage the maintenance of their car. Today, it's not the case anymore. There is also, uh, for example, already some car OEMs um, which uh, are forbidding people to touch the car uh, from the inside because of safety, obviously, because when you have a 400 volt uh, battery and uh, DC-DC and everything inside of the front hood, then there is uh, potentially a, a safety issue. And uh, some OEMs uh, have uh, uh, made the decision to forbid and uh, you are not able, as a user, to open your car and to look inside of it. And so it's, it is moving towards uh, a, a service, meaning that the only people able to make the maintenance of your car is uh, the OEM or the, the, the partner of the OEM. And, um, and this is, a, for me, a, a first step. The only uh, issue is today it's still a product that you buy and uh, it is a separated business model. So there is on one side people who are selling the cars and on the other side people are doing the maintenance of the car. But it needs to change the structure in the market because at the minute it's too expensive. You can rent, you do, you can do rental models, but they don't compare to actually owning your own car. It's cheaper to own yeah. your own car. So this is a big element until that changes. Yeah. But the whole industry needs to kind of work together to create this new model. Yeah, you, you, you cannot change uh, things uh, from one day to another. It's, it's like, it's like um, if uh, in France uh, we were changing the side of the road to be like in UK. But uh, this week we will start with, uh, with trucks. And if it is working next week, we'll do it with cars. <laughs> Unfortunately, it doesn't work. No. <laughs> so how many years are we away from genuine... Transition from selling cars as a product to selling cars as a service. Uh, for for me, it's uh, it would be a big transition. Uh, so it's uh, if it is happening, it would take something like uh, fifteen to twenty years. Uh, if it is happening, one of the the, the headwind uh, we we would face is the scarcity of resources, which can accelerate such kind of of process. Uh, starting with saying that indeed uh, for me the the big issue will be or the big challenge will be uh, the the social impact and the affordability of mobility service. Um, I can make the comparison between Paris and and London, for example. When I buy my my uh, tube ticket in London, it's just uh, crazy for me. Uh, it's five crazy, times crazy expensive. Crazy expensive. Ah. It's five times uh, the cost of a, of a subway ticket. In France, it's a, there is a, an incentive from the state. Oh. Uh, in my understanding is that in UK, it's private, fully private, almost fully private. And so the, that's also a, a, a different uh, model. Um, uh, for me, the, there is a big impact also on how and in the future, how the, the states will be implied and will be... Uh, yeah, incentivized, will, I incentivized, suppose, by the government or, yeah, is, yeah. is a good point. Yeah, if you, yeah. Ma- if you reduce... The, the price of public transport, then people will take it. Yeah, and Always. it will be the same also for electricity supply. If it is fully private or if it is uh, considered as a service uh, for, for people, then it's a different way to evaluate and to, to make the pricing of it. And uh, so to, to answer your question, if what could be a time frame indeed, um, yeah, something like... 15 to 20 years. And why, why I say that? It's because when you, when you are developing a platform in automotive, you are developing it for 15 years, which is uh, two times uh, the, the lifetime of a car. And, uh, and most of the time, you, you do a second 
stage of it. So your vision when you are building a new plant is 30 years. And so everything we do today is will last uh, for the next 30 years. And so that's why it's uh, it's a long run. Uh, slow to change. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really slow to change. Uh, but in terms of architecture, every decision we take today uh, could have an impact in 30 years from now. We need, indeed, by short-term uh, decisions today, will impact uh, long-term impact, indeed, uh, long-term efficiency. Are there key innovations that you think the industry needs in order to move on this 15, 20, 30-year journey towards selling as a service? For, for me, there is uh, different topics. One will be uh, the energy supply, which is at uh, the bottom of everything. And that's why when we are doing the reporting of scope one and scope two, indeed, the scope two emissions is to be able to use uh, as renewable energy as possible. Uh, and this is a basement of everything. And uh, if there's not enough renewable energy that's, providers, that's, really that's going to be a problem. The, the, but it's, it's uh, creating a demand. The, the demand is creating an offer and vice versa. So it's uh, the, the point is by pushing the company to report on their scope two emissions and to reduce their scope two emissions, it is creating demand in the market. Uh, then the offer is coming. And, uh, and then that's at least the assumption behind. The, the, the challenge we will face is that we will not be able to replace uh, oil because uh, our industry is addicted to oil. Every infrastructure we have built for the last 200 years was built on oil uh, availability. So to switch from this industry and this infrastructure to something new will take some time. We need to first uh, to, to look at how to be less dependent uh, from oil and also to address uh, the social impact. Because uh, oil, even if we are thinking that it is expensive today, a liter of oil is uh, something like 7 kilowatt hour of energy. Uh, which is uh, the equivalent of uh, something like between 10 and 20 men of workforce. So it's, it's huge, in, uh, in, it's very dense, very easy to, to travel, very safe in a way. Uh, so there's lots of benefits uh, by using oil, and that's why we were using it. That's why we're so dependent. <laughs> that's why, yes. Uh, for me, the, the, the key element is how we will be able to, yeah, to be less dependent from oil and even less dependent from uh, fossil energy and fossil fuels. Uh, but it will be a, a, a tricky, a tricky situation. That's why it will not take only uh, one year or 10 years. It will take more than that, for sure. So policy is driving a move towards sustainable energy. That's creating demand. Demand should be creating supply, but that supply is not meeting demand soon enough. Yeah, so that's why my guess is uh, in, in the near future, uh, we will face uh, for sure inflation because uh, the demand will create uh, this inflation because the offer is not uh, obviously put some new infrastructure takes some time and uh, volatility, meaning that uh, you will have some uh, offer and demand uh, equilibrium. The demand will create the offer. The offer will take some time to, to arrive in the market and so on and so forth. And uh, in the context where the, uh, we will have some uh, raw material scarcity, and especially in Europe, including UK. While we're talking about the challenges around energy infrastructure, can I ask you about hydrogen? Because it's an area that really interests me. I haven't seen, we've, we've been in Paris most of this week, uh, I haven't seen much in terms of hydrogen infrastructure here, and, and we don't have much in terms of the U, in UK infrastructure. Germany seems to be ahead. 
Where do you see that going, particularly in your own your own context in France? Yeah, uh, so in, in France, there is a lot of investment on uh, hydrogen uh, fields. Uh, very good reasons. There's a lot of uh, competencies uh, to be able uh, developed, uh, and not only in France, but also in Europe. The point is how to uh, direct the right uh, investment on the right field. For example, it doesn't make some sense to use uh, hydrogen for uh, light mobility, like uh, in a car. Um, the, the big reason is that uh, we are limited today um, with a raw material uh, supply, which is platinum. And if you take today, for example, um, uh, if you, you, you take uh, all the platinum supply in the world, if you 50% of it is used in industry, uh, so I don't let, let's consider that we don't touch it. Uh, then there is 25% of platinum which is used for jewelry. So we're not stopping marrying from one day to the other. So let's not touch it. Okay. So we, we still have 25% of platinum used today for automotive industry for catalysis in, um, in the car. So let's consider that from one day to the other. We will stop using diesel diesel cars and use this 25% of platinum supply uh, available to make um, uh, fuel cell cars. With this level of platinum, we are only able to build per year 1.5 million cars. It means 1.5% of the total mix of cars in the world. So it's 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 not answering to the needs for sure. So it's not it, it's not only by any stretch, an infrastructure problem in terms of providing hydrogen infrastructure. It's equally a problem around technology and the, the vehicles themselves, yeah. which, which comes back down to material resource. Yeah, material resource, but also it's, it's um, because today, um, as far as there is no prioritization of, uh, of actions, from my point of view, where it makes sense is uh, for heavy uh, uh, industry. But to use uh, H2, which is a green H2 or blue H2, so meaning the, the, the hydrogen which has been uh, built with renewable energy. And that makes sense because you really be, be able to decarbonize uh, a heavy industry. Um, what makes sense also is for a heavy transportation uh, for trucks and bus, uh, which is uh, making sense because uh, battery electric uh, trucks is very difficult to build because you, build, you, you bring more batteries than uh, merchandise. And so that, that's uh, a, a trade-off. Uh, and so for the, the, the other point is um, where, where, where it is making sense is uh, for a B2B process. So like commercial vehicles, for example, are using uh, fuel cells. Trucks are able to use fuel cells. Bus can use fuel cells uh, because they can manage the full uh, uh, scope of it, including maintenance and including safety because it's a gas which is going uh, up and so you need to when you do the maintenance of your truck bus or light commercial vehicle you need to manage also the safety of uh, of this uh, gas which is which could leak uh, which 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 could go up also in the in the maintenance uh, area and so you put you need to put some regulation like uh, atex uh, level uh, environment and it is costful and so on and so forth so it's the, the point is um, it really makes sense for some activities like trucks bus for sure trains maybe but not quite yet for commercial vehicles and for commercial vehicles you will see them uh, for sure we, we will have some they will be still very expensive Maybe uh, that's what's going to happen in the future. It won't be one way or two ways. Yeah, There'll be 10 it's, ways. It's, uh, it's like a bouquet. 
Yeah, it's yeah. like uh, uh, different areas. Uh, but the, the impact of one using a bouquet, it means that each solution has to use uh, different uh, financial investments. So it means that all of these applications will be more costful, mm. more expensive. Because yeah. you, you end up with this mixed it's yeah. mixed mm-hmm. industry of hydrogen for the for the one point five percent of vehicles that, that are gonna take the platinum. Yeah. And maybe that'll be for the sports cars. Do you think so? Yes. Yes. I noticed it was you who suggested yeah. that. Seen it. <laughs> and you've got the electrified infrastructure for the rest, but there will still be ICEs on the road for years to come. So you've 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 got three infrastructures at least running in parallel for decades to come. Yeah. And, and, and also, uh, for me, it's, um, it's interesting to look at uh, what we will be able to change. Uh, but technology will not uh, do everything. It will be a part of it. Innovation will be still a part uh, uh, to be able to adapt to the evolution in the market. Uh, and at, at the end of the day, also to, be, uh, to work on social acceptance. For when, when uh, an electric vehicle has uh, something like 400 miles or 300 miles of, uh, of range, uh, and uh, compared to uh, an ICE car, which is uh, able to make 1,200 kilometers without stopping to the, the station. Uh, it has to be accepted. So, Vincent, Tribosonics have been in Paris this week, uh, which is quite a frequent occurrence for us as a business. We love it here. We've got some great partners in the, in the city. You don't have to spend long in France or particularly in Paris spending time in the tech scene to hear the phrase La French Tech. Can you tell me what La French Tech is? Uh, it's a good question. It's, it's, um, it has been created something like seven years ago, I guess. It's a political push uh, to create innovation. And uh, something like 20 or 30,000 of startups have, have been created. So it's really huge. As of today, I would say there is a, a pro and cons. The, the pro part of it is that it has created a very good uh, movement because entrepreneurship, French culture is not a culture where you take risk. And uh, this has created a, a, a big move because entrepreneurship is taking risk. Uh, so obviously by making failures, you, you can learn and can build uh, something new. That's uh, for me, I would say the, the good part uh, of it. Uh, the, the drawback of it is um, that uh, it is um, needing a lot of uh, capital investment. And so there was a kind of bubble created uh, for the last uh, five to seven years and valuation of startups uh, could become crazy. Now it is uh, slowing down a bit. The capital investment is, uh, is a bit decreasing. For me, which is good, which is a good sign because it means that it is uh, the market of uh, capital investment is consolidating. And uh, now the investment on startups is going more on uh, more tangible projects than a project which has uh, some potential in the future. They are looking uh, more now on uh, rational, what would be the value for tomorrow and, uh, and uh, what would be the impact in the market. Uh, and sustainability is a part of, uh, of the topic. Um, now, um, to invest in a company which has uh, an impact a startup, for example, uh, makes a lot of sense for lots of uh, investors. I'm also a business angel on the side, uh, so I'm also following uh, this ecosystem from uh, not from far away, but from uh, really uh, An from inside point out. Of yeah, view. yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and also a mentor of startups. And the the point is, um, I can see that from five years ago to now, um, the the whole process has been now professionalized. 
before it was more on the okay, I have an ID, uh, I have a slide, uh, let's do it. Uh, <laughs> uh, now it's really professionalized, and that's uh, for me the, the the maturity of the ecosystem has be really uh, been improved for the last uh, the last couple of years. I want to sorry quickly ask: Is La French Tech now? kind of operating by itself and the market is pushing that forward or is there still investment being put into the French tech? There's a lot of um, what what I saw for the last two to three years uh, that family office are now really structuring themselves to, to invest in startups. Uh, there's even some um, capital investment uh, family office which are investing uh, and to play the statistics, for example. Uh, on my side, for example, I'm more, I'm more on the, the mentoring side uh, because when you are working with the startups, they are searching not only for money, but they are searching also for competency, skills, uh, insights, and Networks. strategies and network. Um, and uh, for me, it's uh, not only to bring money, uh, it's only also to bring knowledge and to open some doors. Mm. But it's indeed also something which is uh, yeah, a key element for the startups to, to become a scale-up. Otherwise, uh, they will uh, they will go in the in the dev valley between the two. So let, let me just make sure I've understood correctly, and, and, and please correct me if I haven't. So La French Tech is government led initiative, which over the past seven years has achieved really a shift in cultural mindset across the nation. And now, seven years in, we're starting to see it maturing, consolidating, and and becoming somewhat independent of of government. But all that has been achieved with significant investment, significant government investment initially, now being backfilled by the family offices and I guess VCs, private equity funds. Not without its challenges, as you've described, and we we need to see those startups moving into the scale-up phase and and beyond. Is, is Is that correct, everything I've understood? Yeah, and uh, what is um, when I mean consolidating is uh, when we are looking at on the precede and seed era. For example, the consolidation has not arrived there yet because it's uh, there is kind of delay, something like uh, six to eight months to that stage. Uh, investment and family office now are investing to B series, C series, and so. Uh, but indeed, the the, the state supported uh, that uh, BPI, which is uh, a bank which has been created in two thousand eight or nine. Uh, to support automotive industry at those time, uh, as uh, then had some cash to invest, uh, and that's how they have been created. And it is a, an interesting story because it was uh, created to save the automotive industry, mm-hmm. to make the link with what we said uh, today. Yeah. And uh, now they are uh, investors uh, and supporting the, the whole uh, startup ecosystem. Can I ask you one last question on subject that's quite close to your heart? In fact, two subjects that are very close to your heart, that's innovation and sustainability. To what extent is or are innovation and sustainability synonymous with La French Tech? Innovation is, uh, is more innovation than sustainability because the, the way it has been built, uh, it has been built on uh, the, the Schumpeterian uh, mindset, meaning that uh, by creating new companies, uh, you will create new competition and you will adapt to new needs in the market. And that's really what is driving the, the, this ecosystem. Sustainability is a part of it. And first, it is led by uh, European law. It is not led by, uh, by national law. Uh, and second, it is um, necessary uh, to, to, to work on them. So it's more uh, on the, the regulation side, uh, which is 
becoming an opportunity to develop something new. Um, that uh, then on um, on the innovation side, which is um, still we, we we are continuing to see uh, uh, startups uh, innovating on some lots of things which are not sustainable. It's unfortunate, but it's a part of the game. That's really interesting. It's it's like the sustainability hasn't become kind of the really important thing. It's starting to get there, and it's going to move there from policy mm. and realization from society that will drive that but we're not quite there yet after it's a question of uh, of mindset uh, awareness also in the population i know that in youngsters not all of them are quite more aware now than what uh, in my yeah. generation we were but after it's also a question of what kind of world they will have to 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 face in the future and that's uh, i saw lots of anxiety in, the, in this uh, kind of generation the, the youngsters less, less than 25 years old for example um, but that's also these guys are, are developing startups and so the good point is i, I can see uh, for example startup starting from scratch uh, doing a new a new venture uh, starting to be um, in the dna of their company to be b corp or uh, to be compliant with uh, sustainability requirements for example um, but to work also on the social side of it, to work on the CO2 side of it. And that's, uh, for me, uh, some good uh, uh, insight for the future. It's, for me, uh, what could be a part of the Schumpeterian new way of uh, developing value in the market, because all companies are obviously stuck in their past investment. And uh, that's something which is really a challenge, uh, not to be in the Kodak uh, syndrome. Kodak died not because they were uh, uh, doing the wrong business. It's, uh, they, they, they died because they were wrong about what they were really selling. They were not selling paper and uh, picture. They were selling memories. That was their business. They died because they didn't handle the right strategy purpose. But it is easier to say it now um, <laughs> because obviously they were protecting their investment. And it is the same for big corporations. Big corporations are and have uh, assets and have uh, investments that they have to value and to use and to value. And uh, that's really a tricky uh, situation now because we need to shift fast to something new. Uh, and obviously some are, are reacting uh, with less flexibility, I would say, than uh, what a startup could do. So that's why the good sign is uh, the ecosystem in La French Tech is also pushing forward developing new uh, activities also both to challenge big uh, big corporations or to take their business in the future sounds like a, an optimistic future from what you're seeing yeah. coming through which is positive yeah so vincent are there any key points you want the audience to take away from the conversation that we've had today um <clears throat> What I can say, I can use an image, another one, um, Do it. of the, 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 the Red Queen um, in, um, uh, from Lewis Carroll, you know, the, the, the Yes, author. the famous author. Yeah, and see, if I try to, um, to frame uh, what um, I, I like one, one passage, is uh, if I can, can quote it. Um, so it's um, speaking about a, a slow sort of country, uh, said the Queen. Uh, now here, you see, it takes uh, all the running you can do to keep in the same place. If you want to get somewhere else, you must run at least twice as fast as that. And for me, it's, uh, it was um, when uh, Lewis Carroll was, uh, was working on his book, uh, he, he was, um, his insight was uh, Darwin. If you stay at the same place, you are regressing. You are not uh, going forward. 
I, I like this quote because it's um, really framing what we have in the economy today. Uh, we are trying to run twice as fast to stay at the same place. Uh, but sometimes it's a lot better to, to stop, to look at things and to take the right decision to, to be able to frame it and to understand uh, what, uh, what, what is at stake and uh, to bounce on what we said uh, along the, the discussion. Sometimes the long-term impact is made by short-term decisions. Mm-hmm. And, but for this, you, we need to, to identify what will be the impact in, in the future to take the right decisions today. And that's for me, which is uh, what really is at, at stake today, how to take the right decision in the short term to stay in the competition, but to also to, to, keep, uh, to keep on track, to stay alive as a company uh, in the future. That's great insight, Vincent. Thank you for that. It's, uh, it sounds quite strategic. Take, take a moment to, to think about how, how we're going to move forward. What is the roadmap? And, and take into all account the considerations that impact. And you. to think uh, in terms of ecosystem, not only uh, as only a part of the, the equation, but also for the, to have the full scope of the understanding. Check out the show notes for, for more information on, and links to the topics of discussion today and on the Navaris Group and Tribosonics. This episode of The Driving Force was brought to you by Tribosonics and sponsored by RaiseLab. RaiseLab connects large enterprises and startups to create lasting and measurable value together through tangible projects developed at scale. RaiseLab has a fantastic podcast studio. We're in it, in the heart of Paris, which is where we had the pleasure of recording the episode. To find out more, visit www.raiselab.co. Well, Vincent, thank you so much for being with us today. You've taken us on a journey through the automotive industry. Uh, starting off with open innovation and sustainability, we talked about this chicken and egg of is innovation driving sustainability or is sustainability driving innovation? And clearly everything you're doing in that area it is linked. Um, so fascinating. We talked about government policy, particularly in Europe, being uh, driven through the OEMs, through the tier ones in, in your industry. And we've talked about the pressure on energy. Uh, again, policy driving demand, driving driving supply, particularly in renewable energy, but that supply not being able to keep up, uh, leading, of course, to the, the energy crisis that we're seeing on the horizon. And we talked about within the automotive industry, this mix of energies as we see hydrogen picking up pace slowly, electrification picking up pace more slowly, but oil and gas very much here for many years to come. Uh, and lastly, we've been talking about material resources, uh, particularly in terms of electrification, battery technology, and hydrogen technology, uh, and the subject of platinum fuel cells. So thank you for fascinating insights into this world. And um, I'm sure our listeners will be intrigued to hear uh, everything we've covered today. So um, from Christina and I, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation. It was great. I was very happy to, to be here with you today. Our next episode will welcome special guest Dr. Michelle Lynch, founder and CEO of Enabled Future Limited, and we'll be discussing key topics in that sector, including car battery manufacturing, whether carbon neutrality really helps us to become more sustainable, and what is the circular economy. Until then, thank you for listening.